You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. Um, If we've not met before, my name is Craig, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I just want to welcome you as we sort of, this is the last weekend ushering us into that time of the year, which uh, is a blur, Uh, the holidays at the end of the year, it happens fast, so uh, it'll be like, you know, after today, it's like falling off a cliff, Uh, it just happens fast from here here on out, Um, so at any rate, I want to welcome you this sort of pre-holiday weekend and invite you into our study. We are working our way uh, through the book of Ephesians, uh, and we are today in a passage where we are making a shift in the entire theme of the book. Um, the, the entire book and the entire approach of the book changes today. And uh, so here's what we're talking about today. I'm calling this sermon, God's Call for All Y'all. And uh, I'm included as well. But I'm using the plural of y'all, which is a double plural, I suppose. But uh, all y'all, because this is a passage that has to do with us. This is a passage that very naturally we would interpret because it speaks of call and calling. We would virtually interpret it as relating to me. Uh, and it does, but it, the emphasis is ultimately for all of us um, because we have been talking in the first three chapters about what God has done to save us as individuals and then what he has done in chapters two and three to build a people uh, for himself. And now we're talking about what does it mean for us uh, together uh, to walk out what God has called us to. I love how uh, commentator Mark Roberts um, talks about the change in chapters 1 to 3 when we hit 4. This is what he says. In Ephesians 1 to 3, we listen to the story of God who saves us in Christ. In Ephesians 4 through 6, we are drawn into the story, not just as people for whom God has acted, but also as actors in the divine drama. We discover in detail what it means to exist For the praise of God's glory, chapter 1, verse 14, and how we might walk in the good works God has prepared for us. So he's saying, as we hit the second half of the chapter, it's application of how do we live out in a daily life what God has done for us and who he has called us to be. He points out that in chapter 1, we are called, we sang it this morning, we're to live for the praise of his glory. Chapters 4 through 6 are going to show us exactly what that looks like on the ground. Um, in chapter 2, verse 10, we we're told that we we're saved by grace so that, God, so that we'd be empowered to walk in the works that God has prepared for us beforehand, ahead of time, uh, that we might faithfully live out uh, our life before him. Chapters 4 through 6 are going to show us what that looks like. And so we start today, we're going to look at verses 1 through 6 of Ephesians chapter 4, which is the first point that sort of moves from what God has done to what he has called us to do by his grace. Listen to God's holy word. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager 
to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So Paul has written this theological description of what God has done for us in chapters 1 to 3. He told us that we were chosen before time, that we were redeemed by the Lord Jesus, that we were sealed by the Holy Spirit, and all of this is from grace. For we were dead in our transgressions and sins, but he made us alive together with Christ. By grace he saved us, not by our good works, but for good works. He saved us that we might live out good works by his grace. And he not only saved us as individuals, but chapter 2 says he joined us together and he takes the two most divided people of his day, Jew and Gentile, and said he's made us one in Christ. He's torn down the dividing wall and now we are one new person in Christ. And this is the mystery, he says. The mystery of the gospel is that God has made us all one in Jesus Christ, destroying every cultural, religious, ethnic, uh, every kind of barrier, age barrier, gender barrier, every barrier that would divide us, we're brought together in Christ. And all of this glorious doctrine is to lead us somewhere, to a real living, daily application, and that's what we get beginning in chapter 4. So he begins with, in chapter 4, I urge you, verse 1, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Live all of your lives worthy of this calling. Well, in chapters 1 to 3, he's made it clear our calling is to God. God is the one that called us into relationship with himself. We're called to his purposes. We are also called to his people. We are called together. We tend to think of my calling, and that's, that's a, an accurate way to think about it, that my calling, we use that word to speak of my calling to salvation, the ultimate call that I heard his voice, that he, he called me to repent and believe, and that he gave me the power to do so through the preached gospel. We talk about our various callings in life, that uh, we're not only called for our salvation, but we're called to be a mother or called to be a husband or called to be a, a, a worker, called to be a neighbor, called to be a friend, called to be a citizen. So we have these various callings. But in this passage, he's, he's talking, uh, perhaps all that applies in some way, but he's talking about our corporate calling. And that's why I'm calling it God's call for all y'all. He's talking about a corporate calling because he's calling us to do something or to maintain something together here. He's calling us to live worthy of this call, to be reconciled to God and his people and to be called according to all of God's purposes. He says that we're to live a life that is worthy of that. Now, when he says worthy, he doesn't mean we're supposed to earn it because chapter 2 makes it very clear we're not saved according to our works, but by grace. It's, it doesn't mean we are to earn or merit what he's done for us. It means rather that we are to live a life that is fitting. That's what he means by worthy. Fitting of your calling. Appropriate to your calling. That our lives are to be fitting to the gospel or appropriate for those who've been reconciled to God and his people. So what does a life look like in someone who has been reconciled to God, reconciled to his people, given a new purpose and meaning? 
to follow God and all of his or her life. That's what we're called to do. He's saying that what we believe about the gospel has very real life implications. And this is where he starts. Look at verse 3. Live out your calling, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The NIV has a, 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 an excellent translation of this. It says, make every effort, make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's a, it, there's an urgency to it. See, living a life worthy of God's call involves making every effort to maintain our unity as God's people in God's church as he moves history along to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, chapter 1, verse 10. After giving us such a glorious vision of what he's done for us in salvation, the first order of application is maintain unity. And I don't think many of us, any of us, would have started there. If you didn't have chapters 4 through 6 and you just read all that God has done for us in election and Jesus' death on the cross and extending grace to us in building us together, is the first place, based on the grace of God, what is the first place Paul goes to application? Maybe we would have thought holiness or purity. That, that's coming later. Maybe we would have thought relationships, how we, how, you know, our marriage, that's coming later. Maybe we would have thought prayer, that's coming later. Maybe we would have thought God's forgiven you, so forgive others, that's coming later. He starts with maintain unity. And one of the reasons that we didn't see that coming is because our view of the gospel and conversion and Christianity overall is so individualized that we don't even think about what God is doing corporately, like what God's purposes are for the church. We underestimate what unity means to God. Jesus shed his blood that we might be one. And, and, and we, we underestimate how God treasures the unity of his people. We underestimate what it means to our mission. Because if God is going to ultimately unite all things in Christ, that starts right now in the here and now among his people with uniting us together. If he's going to unite all of creation under Jesus Christ, it will start with his people. So finding our place in God's mission, our theme for the year, discovering our place in God's mission in Ephesians, the first point of application is understanding what God has done. The first point is finding your place among God's people, maintaining the precious unity that Jesus died for. He's going to say a lot more, but that's where he starts. Notice he doesn't say build unity. He doesn't say get unified. But he says eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit. Jesus' death and resurrection has already created our unity. So we're not called to establish what already exists. He says it already exists. We are rather to value it, to maintain it. We are rather to guard the unity of the people of God. We're to protect it and to preserve it with urgency. Make every effort eager to maintain. We, we, we share this bond of peace. 
So he says you, you experience a bond of peace. Maintain that. What is this bond of peace? Well, Jesus is our peace and describes this bond just one chapter before. In chapter 2, this is review. In chapter 2, verse 14, this is what he says. Ephesians 2, 14. For he himself is our peace. We have unity in the spirit and the bond of peace. Well, Jesus is our peace who's made us both one, that's Jew and Gentile, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. For, the, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So what Paul's saying in chapter 4 is look back at number 2, all, chapter 2, all that Jesus accomplished. Make every effort to live that out, to, to give witness or expression, to give bodily, physical, relational demonstration of what Jesus has done for his people in his cross and resurrection. Well, how do we do that? Well, Paul knew we would ask. God knew we would ask. And so he tells us what are the character qualities that are necessary to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So look back at verse 2. Uh, one, I'm going to refer to one again. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, this calling to, this calling to be one. Verse 2, with all humility. This is where he starts, with all humility. Now, in the Greek-speaking world, in Ephesus, uh, where Paul is writing, humility was despised. Humility was looked at as a vice and not a strength because humility reflected sort of a servile attitude. And uh, so it was not respected. You know, uh, it was, they, had a, they had a bad view of, of genuine humility, but their view of humility was weakness, and they valued strength. I mean, this was the Roman Empire, after all. They valued strength. And yet Paul elevates humility as the defining quality of the believer. This is the first place he starts. Hey, I'm writing as a prisoner of the Lord. Live out your calling. How do you do that? With humility. Now, for three chapters, again, he has stressed what God has done for us, and then he says, walk in humility. This makes a lot of sense. I mean, this is how he begins the book. In uh, chapter 1, verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He starts the book saying, before anything is created, God chose you. Well, uh, I don't get to take a lot of credit for my salvation then, do I? If it was something God was already planning before I was born, the natural response to that kind of language is humility. It's just humility is just acknowledging reality. Uh, we were dead in sin, he says in chapter 2. He made us alive in Christ. So he says, this has nothing to do with your effort. You get zero credit. You get zero credit for your salvation. You only contributed the sin which Jesus had to die for. So you see, when we get what grace really is, the natural, appropriate, logical, reasonable response would be acknowledging that reality and being humble. 
Humility avoids self-promotion and personal boasting because it recognizes that all that we have is a gift from God, for by grace you have been saved. We're not only to have humility towards God, but, but to make the application to this call to maintain unity, we are to, uh, we're to live out humility before others as well. The word that Paul uses for humility in Greek here means lowliness of mind. It's a way of thinking, a way of thinking. It's described, I think, beautifully in Philippians 2. In Philippians 2, he describes the Lord Jesus and how he lived, and he says that we are uh, we're called to the same kind of humility. He says this, Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So do you see how Jesus lived and what we're called to? It's, it's humility starts with our approach to God, who is holy and has saved us purely by his grace and given us a purpose, called us to his people, uh, given us a calling to live out our life uh, as part of his mission to reach the world. Uh, so we're called to that, but we're also called to uh, a life of preferring others. Humility, that's what he says in Philippians 2. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, to the interest of others. So, so humility is more listening than speaking. Humility is more seeking to understand than be understood. It's putting the interest of others above my own interest. In the past year... Um, if we think about the church broadly, I, I can only speak to some degree to the church in our country. I don't know how it's all played out all over the world. But arguably, this has been the least applied verse in the New Testament, maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace with all humility. Um, if, if the church's maturity, if we are being measured by that verse alone... Um, we probably don't get real high marks over this last year. It's kind of been a perfect storm, and through that perfect storm, there has been significant division in the church at large. And uh, our church, we, uh, to be frank, we haven't, uh, we haven't missed that. Uh, we've had some of our own moments of uh, division, certainly divided opinions over various things. And so I've raised that, and uh, I've raised that as a problem in the church and a problem for us as a church. But I also want to say this, that in the last year and a half, it has been a joy to be able to observe people who are walking in all humility and all, are seeking to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace in the church. Uh, it's wonderful to see people living this out in a divided world. And while we've had our division, we've also had our humility and walking out in love. I mean, there have been people who, uh, when we first began talking a year and a half ago, uh, when everything started about masks and our protocol and what are we going to do, there were, this may surprise you, there are a few opinions about what we should do. But you know what I observed? I observed many, many people who I knew their opinion, but then I saw how they acted and would say, well, I am going to treat this issue uh, 
Philippians 2. I'm going to consider others more significant than myself. I'm going to put the interest of others above my own interest. And if it was my call, we probably would do this. But since it's not my call uh, before the Lord, I'm going to do this joyfully. That's humility. There's been people in the last year who've been in a context. Someone described one of these recently to me where they were in a church, our church context, and somebody was just uh, airing strong political opinions. Uh, that happened a few times the last year. Um, and someone was airing strong political opinions, and they, this person just didn't, had an opinion, but just didn't, chose not to speak, chose to listen and not to speak. Why? Because they wanted to act in a way with all humility to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And our bond was not going to be a political party, but our bond was going to be the gospel. There's been others in the room who I know, you haven't told me this, but I just know you've read something on Facebook, and guess what? It's been from a church member at Grace Church, and you are ready to type out or thumb out or however you're looking. You are ready to give. Oh, I got to. And you paused, and you thought, and you said, I don't need to say anything. I'm going to pray for this person and those who are interacting that God would be gracious. Why? Because with all humility, you considered someone else as more significant than yourself, and you, commit, you considered unity in the church as the value that God has given us to walk out. doesn't mean we can't talk about uh, politics or masks or, or um, any, of the other, any of the other things we've talked about in the last year. It doesn't, matter, it doesn't mean we can't discuss those, but there's a way to do that healthy, and there's a way to do that in a way that tears down rather than builds up. This summer, I had a front row seat in what has, uh, if I look at the whole year and a half, been the highlight for me when I think about this verse. And that was when we did a, a class on uh, race, lament, lament and racial reconciliation this summer. And I observed people in a class hearing some teaching and then sitting in circles with people of different races, dialoguing, listening, asking follow-up questions, interested in someone else's experience and viewpoint, sharing, learning, and realizing that required such humility for someone to come and share something that maybe I don't see or don't agree or don't get, um, or sharing something that someone else doesn't see or agree or get or whatever, and to have people listen and laugh and cry and embrace and celebrate the unity we have in Christ, which is deeper than any other cultural division. We desire humility to be a core value in our church, not because it's a technique for getting along with other people, but because it's the appropriate response to the grace of God. Because of what God has done for us, we humble ourselves. And we have had many moments in the last year where that has been challenging and divided us. And where we are divided, I, I think so often when division actually happens, it's, it's because of pride and selfishness and self-righteousness. It's just rarely, I've just rarely seen, man, we had a fight. Why? Well, we were both so humble. The humility just caused a division. I've just never seen that. I was so aware of the grace of God she was so aware of the grace of God. We were living in the grace of God and had a very bad fight and don't like each other and speak anymore. What? No. 
No. So I've brought critique over the last year, and I felt like it would only be appropriate to say what I've just said because the grace of God has been with us. And while I've had my moments and you've had your moments, God has been at work in us. And there are examples throughout our church of people walking out, maintaining the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Thank the Lord and thank you for your response. We are still together as a church and that's a beautiful thing. With all humility and with gentleness, verse 2, gentleness. Humility and gentleness go together, with all humility and gentleness. The word can be translated meekness as well. Now, some people, uh, the the Romans didn't like this word. The Roman Empire didn't like this word either. Uh, Because meek, uh, well, we think of that, even we do in English, we think of meek, the word meek meaning wimpy. Kind of like the guy who said, the meek shall inherit the earth if that's okay with everybody. It's, it's not, that's not the view. Meekness is not just, uh, you know, this kind of wimpy, milk toast kind of an attitude. Meekness is strength under control. St- meekness and gentleness is the fruit of self-control. Actually, gentleness is the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, but it's the fruit of dealing with other people with compassion and sensitivity. Just like humility, gentleness was not valued in Ephesus, but God values. As a matter of fact, the ultimate example of gentleness, if we think I don't know about that term, the ultimate example is Jesus. This is what Matthew 11, 28 and 29 says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I, Jesus speaking, am gentle and lowly in heart which would be humble, and you will find rest for your souls. So in union with Christ, we, the people of God, together are to cultivate a gentleness, which uh, doesn't mean, gentleness doesn't mean a fear of taking a stand on truth. Did Jesus stand for truth? More than anyone who's ever lived. And yet he could be characterized as gentle and lowly of heart. Gentleness protects and guards our unity. Whereas harshness and anger and self-righteous judgment destroys our unity. This is, a, this is one that I, I'm trying to think more about and I, I challenge you to think as well. I mean, what does it look like for a church to walk out gentleness? All of you, all of you with humility and gentleness make every effort. Eager to maintain this, you know, the unity of the spirit. What, what does a gentle church look like? It doesn't mean a church that tolerates sin because Jesus is gentle. So it cannot mean a church that is big on hugs and low on holiness. Uh, It can't be that. It's got to be Jesus is the most holy person. He's the God man. And yet he says, I am gentle and lowly of heart. What would it mean for you to cultivate gentleness in your relationships with others? Strength under control, the fruit of the Spirit, gentleness. These are the things he calls us to. After three chapters on doctrine, we're starting with humility and gentleness. Curveball. Didn't see that one. But that's what he says. How else do we maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? With patience. Bearing with one another in love. These two are separate in the list, patience and bearing with one another in love, but they're related, aren't they? 
They're kind of the same idea. Uh, bearing with one another in love is demonstrating patience. Now, patience isn't required with people uh, in the moment where we find them pleasing and enjoyable and pleasant. That, that's not when you exercise patience. Patience, by its very nature, by its very definition, bearing with in love means there's a challenge. The word patience literally means long-tempered. It's the exact opposite of having a short fuse. It's the fruit of the Spirit that is born from recognizing chapters 1 through 3, God, excuse me, God's grace to me, and therefore how I am to respond to others based on God's grace to me. I love John Stott's definition of patience in this verse. He says, patience is long-suffering toward aggravating people such as God in Christ has shown toward us. That's it, isn't it? I was dead in sin and God put up with me. God was patient with me. He is the, God, God had every right to judge me, condemn me at any moment, and yet was long-suffering, bore with me in my ignorance and in my rebellion. And so we are to bear as God is born with us. If you participate for any length of time in a church, you will be called to be patient with others and to bear with someone in love. And if that's not happened at Grace Church yet, just stick around. You will have an opportunity to be patient with someone and they will have an opportunity to bear with you as well. Unity is not the absence of conflict. Unity is uh, a patient, extending patience to one another uh, in times of difficulty and in times of uh, disagreement. When I think about being patient with one another corporately and bearing with one another in love, I think about a story I read over 20 years ago. It's in a book called Church, Why Bother? My Personal Pilgrimage by Philip Yancey. Why bother with the church? And he was asking that in 1998. That's a really common question today. So the book was prescient, somewhat uh, prophetic, uh, perhaps looking ahead of time. Yancey grew up in fundamentalism, but as he became an adult, and studied, he, he ultimately became part of a different kind of church. He became part of an urban church, um, which presented a various uh, kind of uh, graces and challenges. And he tells about the experience of a guy in his church named Adolphus. He said, I learned an enduring lesson about what grace looks like in action from my church's response to Adolphus. Every inner city church has at least one Adolphus. He had spent some time in Vietnam, and most likely his troubles started there. He could never hold a job, and his fits of rage and craziness sometimes landed him in an asylum. If Adolphus took his medication on Sunday, he was manageable. But otherwise, well, church could be even more exciting than usual. He might start at the back and high-hurdle his way over the pews down to the altar. He might raise his hands in air during a hymn and make obscene gestures. I've never seen that happen, but uh, thankfully, but that's what he did. As part of worship, uh, our church had a time called Prayers of the People. We would all stand and 
spontaneously, various people would call out a prayer for peace in the world or healing in the, of the sick or justice, we would respond in unison after each spoken request. Adolphus soon figured out that prayers of the people provided an ideal platform for him to air his concerns. This is 1998, so the next illustration is dated. Adolphus prayed one morning, Lord, thank you for creating Whitney Houston and her magnificent body. After a puzzled pause, a few chimed in weakly, Lord, hear our prayer. <laughs> Lord, thank you for the big recording contract I signed last week and for all the good things happening in my band, prayed Adolphus. Those of us who knew Adolphus realized he was fantasizing, but others joined in with a heartfelt, Lord, hear our prayer. Some of the prayers were met with awkward silence. Once Adolphus prayed that the pastors of the church would see their houses burned down this week, and no one seconded that prayer. <laughs> a group of people in the church, including a doctor and psychiatrist, took on Adolphus's care. Every time he had an outburst, they pulled him aside and talked him through, using the word inappropriate a lot. Adolphus, your anger may be justified, but there are appropriate and inappropriate ways to express it. Praying for the pastor's house to burn down is inappropriate. We learned that Adolphus sometimes walked the five miles to church on Sunday because he could not afford bus fare. Members of the congregation began to offer him rides. Some invited him over for meals. Most Christmases he spent with our assistant pastor's family. Boasting about his musical talent, Adolphus asked to join the music group that sang during communion services. It turned out that he had absolutely no musical ability. After hearing him audition, the leader settled on a compromise. Adolphus could stand with the others and sing, but only if his electric guitar remained unplugged. Each time the group performed thereafter, Adolphus stood with them and sang and played his guitar, which thankfully produced no sound. Generally, this compromise worked well, except for the Sundays when Adolphus skipped his medication and felt led to do a gyrating Joe Cocker imitation across the platform as the rest of us lined up to receive the body and blood of Christ. The day came when Adolphus asked to join the church. The elders quizzed him on his beliefs and found little in the way of encouragement, but decided to put him on a kind of probation. He could join the church when he demonstrated he understood what it actually meant to be a Christian and when he learned to act appropriately around others in church. Against all odds, Adolphus's story has a happy ending. He calmed down. He started calling people in the church when he felt the craziness coming on. He even got married. And on the third try, Adolphus was accepted for church membership. Grace comes to people who don't deserve it. And for me, Adolphus came to represent grace. In his entire life, no one had ever invested that kind of energy and concern in him. He had no family, no job, no stability. Church had become for him a stable place. It accepted him despite all he had done to earn rejection. The church did not give up on Adolphus. It gave him a second and third and fourth chance. Christians who had experienced God's grace transferred it to Adolphus, and that stubborn, unquenchable grace gave me an indelible picture of what God puts up with by choosing to love the likes of me. 
I now look for churches that exude this kind of grace. Be patient with one another, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. This is our calling, church. It is to take the grace that we have received, the undeserved favor of God for those of us who deserve his judgment, and to extend that grace to others. Make every effort. When you think about this verse, I ask you today, are you experiencing walking with that kind of humility and gentleness, patience and bearing with one another, motivated by the urgency to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? Another way to ask that question is to ask it this way, are you experiencing God's grace? Because all of verses 1 through 6 in chapter 4 come as an overflow of God's grace to us. God's call for all of us is that we enter into that grace and extend that grace to be part of God's great calling to change this world as he works towards bringing all things together in Christ, starting with us. Ultimately, our unity stems from the oneness of God. That's verses 4 to 6, which I'm not going to really talk much about. But if you read verses 4 to 6, you'll see the word one used seven times. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. One, one, one. He's saying maintain the unity of the spirit because... God is triune. God the Father is above all and over all. The Lord, the Son, there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. I had a Baptist professor that said, notice the order. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. You have the Lord, you have your faith, and then you have your baptism. But that's a Baptist point that I had to throw in for no extra charge. One spirit. We have the unity of the spirit. You, there is one body, verse 4, and one spirit. So Paul doesn't go far to getting back to theology. So he gives us theology. He tells us what that calling calls us to. And he says, by the way, what I just told you, that's rooted in theology as well. The triune nature of God. One Lord, one spirit. Lord Jesus, one Father. Just as God is one, just as God has united us with Christ and made us one by his grace with humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another, make top priority your calling to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.